0: From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all are subject, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and, in some cases, increasing measure of control from uh, from Moscow. The, the Communist parties, which were very small in all these eastern states of Europe, have been raised to preeminence and power far beyond their numbers and are seeking everywhere to obtain totalitarian control.
1: The unmistakable voice of Winston Churchill, the former and future Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He was speaking at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, 1946, less than a year after the end of the Second World War. He'd been invited to the college and introduced by President Harry Truman. A very prescient speech.
2: So this is how liberty dies. With nurse applause. Welcome to Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause. I'm your host, Scott, with Uncle Ian. Today's episode features a matchup of two fantastic South East European communist dictators. Of course, we have Tito of Yugoslavia up against Nikolai Ceausescu. Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause is a history podcast obsessed with history's biggest dictators. We've created a knockout competition to determine the single biggest dictator of all time. Each episode features a matchup of two dictators. In each episode, we discuss the life and times of each leader. The loser of each battle is eliminated from the tournament. The winner remains in the contest to be named history's biggest dictator. Up first, we have the war hero, the communist, the unifier of the peoples of Yugoslavia, Josip Broz Tito.
1: Josip Broz, born 7th of May, 1892 in Komrovic, which is near Zagreb in Croatia. At the time, it was part of Austria-Hungary. We remember him as the leader of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia from 1939 until his death. So what does Yugoslavia mean? Literally, it is the land of the South Slavs. Located in southeastern Europe, Historically, a very precarious place because you had the Austro-Hungarian Empire to the north and the Ottoman Empire to the south.
2: The history of Yugoslavia and Tito is the history of the 20th century. They've suffered through the imperial ambitions of large empires in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then went into World War I, then into the Depression, then suffered through the Nazis and then communism, and then eventual nationalisms and ethnic cleansing in the late 90s. If you want to learn about the 20th century and the horrors of it, you only really need to learn about Bosnia. From 1914, when Gabrielo Princip shot Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, and then in the late 90s, Bosnia was besieged in the longest siege of a city in human history.
1: Look, Scott, you're right. Uh, I won't go so far as to use the word microcosm, but we're getting close. Tito was born into a large peasant family. That Sorry, that's a family of peasants which has a lot of peasants in it. It's not necessarily a family where all the peasants are individually large. I read one report where he's got some 15 siblings. However, sadly, um, and perhaps typically for the times, half of them died in childhood. In 1913, he was drafted into the Austro-Hungarian Army. In 1914... When Austria declared war on Serbia, Tito was in the army as a sergeant. In 1915, he ended up on the Russian front. He was wounded and captured. While captured, he learned about Bolshevism. The Bolsheviks were a particular wing
2: of the communists inside the revolutionary movement in Russia.
1: In 1917, he was in Petrograd, which we know as St. Petersburg, and he participated in the July Days demonstrations. Subsequently, he fought with the Red Guards in Siberia, stayed in Russia until 1920, fully-fledged Bolshevik by that stage. In 1920, he returned home. The Kingdom of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, there's a mouthful, had been established after the Great War. At the end of 1920, the kingdom banned communist activities. He lost his job in a locksmith shop in Zagreb. He then ended up working as a mill mechanic and a trade union organiser because the Communist Party went underground. 1928 was a huge year. Tito was arrested. Bombs were discovered in his apartment. He ended up being sentenced to five years in prison. At this stage, he had already been marked by the Comintern. That was the Marxist-Leninist organisation trying to spread international communism. He'd been marked out by the Comintern as a potential operative and future leader. In 1929, King Alexander proclaimed a royal dictatorship following those political assassinations. Possibly the most stable place to be was in prison. Tito was there until 1934, he actually after that returned to the Soviet Union to work with the Comintern and stayed there till October of 1936, at which point he was sent back to Yugoslavia to resume the underground work of the Communist Party. His time in the Soviet Union probably saved his life because in the late 30s, Stalin purged most of the leadership of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. Tito wasn't seen as a threat because he'd just recently been in the Soviet Union it's quite possible he may have been complicit in those purges that were led by Stalin now where did the name Tito come from he picked what was a well-known Croat name trying to preserve their anonymity everyone had a particular name within the resistance which wasn't their real name so if you were captured and tortured then you couldn't actually inform on your colleagues because you didn't know their real names that was the logic behind it in april 1941 the second world war well and truly arrived in yugoslavia the axis powers occupied and partitioned yugoslavia and when we're talking about the axis powers we are primarily talking about germany and italy Once Germany had absorbed Austria, then both Germany and Italy had borders with Yugoslavia. The Communist Party was already organised at a national level in order to oppose the Axis occupation. The words that the CPY used was the national liberation struggle. It really had two aims. Firstly, liberate Yugoslavia from the Axis powers and then reunify, but the second aim was to be the post-war rulers of Yugoslavia. In 1943, Yugoslavia's royal government in exile and consequently the Allies recognised Tito as the leader of the Yugoslav resistance. During the war, Stalin had to be cautious about overtly supporting the communist party of yugoslavia because he didn't want to frighten his allies he didn't want to be seen to be supporting communism outside the soviet union tito appealed to the western allies for assistance and u.s general eisenhower was able to give great support to tito and his partisans in october 1944 the soviet army liberated serbia with the help of tito's partisans and by the beginning of may communists had control over all of what we came to know as yugoslavia so on the 9th of may 1945 tito gave the following speech and i quote peoples of yugoslavia serbs croats slovenes macedonians montenegrins moslems the long-awaited day you have yearned for has come The German and Italian fascists sent you against each other so you might destroy yourselves. Instead of mutual discord and hostility, you are united today in a new and happier Yugoslavia. Later in 1945, the communists convened fraudulent elections which were able to legitimise the removal of the monarchy. They were fraudulent because only a certain proportion of the population was able to vote, and there was some uh, misreporting of
2: statistics. That's a um, check in the column for dictator bingo for Tito, just the rigged elections. That's just classic dictatorship. Oh,
1: yes. Oh, yeah, definitely.
2: Did he get 99.9% uh, of the vote?
1: Uh No. I haven't got it in front of me. I think it was somewhere in the 60s. Oh, he's very conservative, Tito. Yeah, I know. Well, this was his first go yeah, at sure elections. Enough. So Remember, he'd been hiding out in the hills for four years, waiting for Eisenhower to send parachute drops in. In November of 1945, we had a new constitution and rename the country the Federal People's Republic of Yugoslavia. Now, Scott, as we've learnt... Any good communist country has to have the term People's Republic as a cornerstone of its name.
2: (laughs) The more references there are to democracy or to the people in the name of a country, the less likely is it that the people get any democracy.
1: That's exactly right. Always deal with the difficult bit in the title. (laughs) So there were trials of captured collaborators, trials of opposition figures, there were trials of members of the Communist Party that he distrusted. All this helped to make Yugoslavia look more Soviet. Now, once he'd established the Federal People's Republic of Yugoslavia, Tito also had territorial aims in Albania and also in northern Greece. Again, Stalin was cautious. He didn't want to provoke the West any more than he already had. And this was the start of the famous falling out between Stalin and Tito. In 1948, Stalin publicly condemned Tito, having been unable to unseat him. The only result in that is that it pushed Yugoslavia closer to the West in terms of their diplomatic relations and in terms of their trade. Maybe Stalin felt threatened by Tito. As it turned out, when Stalin died, found amongst his papers was a letter that Tito had written to him.
2: I've got the quote. Stop sending people to kill me. We've already captured five of them. One of them with a bomb and another with a rifle. If you don't stop sending killers, I'll send one to Moscow and I won't have to send a second.
1: Building on that... In 1993, the Los Angeles Times carried a report that Beria, on Stalin's behalf, had plotted to use Joseph Grigulovich, who'd been a party to the assassination of Trotsky in Mexico in 1940 and had subsequently reinvented himself as a Costa Rican diplomat and become their ambassador to Yugoslavia.
2: With the last uh, name Grigulovich.
1: That's right. To kill Tito either via poison or via lethal bacteria, possibly released from a jewellery box. There's no evidence that particular plot was attempted, although after Stalin's death, when Khrushchev met with Tito, he would apologise for the reputed 22 assassination attempts, saying that Khrushchev was impressed that Tito was so well protected by his informants and his guards.
2: 22 times is a lot of times to survive uh, an assassination attempt from Stalin. Most people don't get more than one go at it.
1: Exactly. I think that says volumes about both Stalin and Tito. (laughs) That's right. So the West were quite comfortable with the concept of Yugoslavia falling out of the Soviet orbit and were able to arrange aid and military assistance. So we've heard a lot, Scott, ...in previous episodes about leaders who were seen as being bulwarks against communism. You can't describe Tito that way, but we can certainly describe him as a bulwark against Stalinism. And I think the Western countries were comfortable with having Tito in power... ...because of his anti-Stalinist rhetoric.
2: Tito's position is very uncommon. At the time, he was completely singular. Every other communist country in, in Eastern Europe was effectively a satellite state of the Soviet Union. You had East Germany, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, all puppets of the Soviet Union. Yugoslavia was in a different situation because Yugoslavia was actually the only European country on the continent to repel the Nazis themselves without relying on the British, Americans or the Russians. As a result, Tito was able to set his own agenda, despite being communist,
1: was able to make Yugoslavia independent of the Soviet Union. And I think the geography had a part to play in that as well. A lot of those other countries we've named were either directly bordering the Soviet Union. On Stalin's death in 1953, the Soviets saw an opportunity to bring Tito back into their orbit. Khrushchev visited Belgrade in 1955 and they formed a good personal relationship. However, that only lasted until 1956 when the Soviets sent the tanks into neighbouring Hungary. Tito increasingly saw himself as neither of the East nor of the West. He actively sought out other leaders who similarly felt non-engaged and during the late 1950s he built up relations with Nasser of Egypt and Nehru of India in 1961 Tito hosted the first formal meeting of the non-aligned states it was his dream to promote non-alignment as a movement in itself to be neither east nor west and he did grow to enjoy being a figure on the world stage he liked his uniforms and he liked his foreign trips The non-aligned movement continues today. It has grown to include 120 members. And Scott, you might recognise some of the names of leaders who've served three-year terms as chairman of the non-aligned movement. Mugabe, Suharto, Mubarak, both Castros, Ahmadinejad, and Mandela have all served as chairman of the non-aligned movement at one stage. How do you you go from Mubarak to Mandela? (laughs) Jeez. You don't have to be a dictator to be a member of the non-aligned movement, but it sounds like it helps. Yeah. (laughs) Within Yugoslavia, Tito tried to roll out a different brand of communism, almost going back pre-Lenin. He wanted to set up workers councils at factory level so that they could discuss operational issues and identify the best way to run that business. It would still be state owned, but the workers would have a say in the operation of the factory. This led to a decreasing reliance on Soviet style centralized planning. He also introduced a party senate trying to democratize the Communist Party, which does sound like a bit of a contradiction in terms. He also set up diplomatic relations with the Vatican and allowed freedom of religion, although the Catholic Church had to agree to stay out of politics. Now, he didn't have wide-scale purges in the same sense as a number of other countries that we've heard of, but there were times to remove his political opponents some ended up in jail, some were asked to leave the party, some were asked to go into exile, but there's no evidence of widespread murders of political opponents.
2: The Stalinists, the enemies of Tito, and the anti communists got to share a prison island. Approximately 50,000 Stalinists and anti communists were tortured on the Croatian Alcatraz named Goli Otok. What made Goli Otok unique? as a prison camp, was that the inmates were forced to beat and torture each other. Antonij Isakovich, in his book, wrote, New arrivals, together with those inmates deemed still politically unreformed, were forced to run through a corridor of fellow prisoners wielding sticks and whips. The guards stood back and watched as the victim was beaten and verbally abused. Some victims collapsed, bleeding on the ground. Those who made it to the end were required to point out which of the prisoners had not beat them hard enough. These men were then forced to run the gauntlet themselves. After their time at Goli, Tok, some inmates became so dependent on their captors that even later in life, after they were released, they were almost incapable of taking even trivial decisions for themselves. After his release, one inmate sought out his guard to ask him whether he should get married or not. What's maddening Uncle Ian about this system is that Tito is fighting Stalinism
1: with Stalinist methods. Yes, I don't think that's quite the reputation that Tito wanted to push across to his friends in the West. That book only came out very recently,
2: in the 90s, because it was hidden. Because the people loved Tito, it wasn't something that they wanted to hear, and the inmates and guards were so ashamed of their participation in that system. In contrast to that, Tito built a residence off the coast of Croatia known as Paradise Island, which sounded much nicer. He hosted Elizabeth II as well as the Shah of Iran, and for some reason, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and Sophia Loren. It's now open to tourists. Speaking of Elizabeth II, Tito's governing style was very monarchical. In Serbia, he adopted the traditional royal custom of being a godfather to every ninth son. Just like a Serbian king, Tito would appear wherever a ninth child was born to the family to congratulate the parents and give them a gift of cash. Which sounds quite lovely. I mean I wouldn't mind that if, if I had a ninth child and Tito rocked up with a bag of cash.
1: Yes, you're not gonna you're not gonna turn him away. No, absolutely not. Just on Paradise Island, Scott, and ignoring the fact that probably sounds like a reality television show, that particular island was one of his 32 official residences throughout Yugoslavia. Now, to be fair, they were all state owned rather than Tito owned, but he did have exclusive use of all 32. Um, yes,
2: the, the proletariat wasn't getting a week in Paradise Island, were they?
1: Oh, it's not a timeshare setup. Scott. You're exactly <laughs> right. You have a really nice
2: set of holiday destinations, ranging from mountainous to, to coastal to rural. It would
1: be lovely. Back up up in Slovenia with all the relatives, with all those siblings. I'm guessing he had a lot of nephews and nieces, but I don't actually know. What what I do know about his personal life, it's impossible to say how many wives he had. It's at least four. His final wife was Jovanka, some 30 years younger than him. They got married in 1952. She was of Serbian background. They'd split in the late 1970s. No pun intended. But at the time of Tito's death, she was still considered his wife and consequently was put under house arrest after Tito's death and passed away only in 2013. So in the 1970s, Tito was well into his 80s by this stage, still in power, but still conscious that there was going to be a change of power at some stage in the future. He wanted to try and decentralise power back to the provinces, the the eight republics that made up Yugoslavia. And so the 1974 constitution brought in a a loose federation whereby each of the republics, so Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, Montenegro, etc., would each get a term as the, the chair of the federation, like a rotating presidency. This gave the smaller republics equality, which antagonised the Serbs as the largest, and of course the Serbs had been quite happy with the capital being in, in Belgrade. This helped pave the way for the Serbian antagonism in the 1980s and the rise of Milosevic, and then after Tito died in 1980, the absence of his authoritarian oversight led to the increased rise of nationalist groups and the eventual breakup of Yugoslavia and the the racial and religious civil wars that we saw. He was uh, holding
2: Yugoslavia together by the force of his own charisma. The speed at which Yugoslavia fell apart after his death really hammers home his unique ability to hold that country together.
1: Oh, you're right. And the fact that he'd been the leader of the partisans during the Second World War, that sustained his reputation all the way through Tito's funeral, Scott, I don't know if you read about Tito's funeral, at the time, so this is May of 1980, at the time it was said to be the second biggest audience for a television program after the initial moon landing. That is huge. And hundreds of thousands of people descended on Belgrade for the funeral. It is rated as the largest state funeral in history. And if we go to the scoreboard, four kings, 31 presidents, six princes, 22 prime ministers, and of the 154 members of the United Nations at the time, there was representation from 128 at Tito's funeral. The largest state funeral in history gives you an indication the impression he'd made outside Yugoslavia. He didn't do any succession planning other than trying to build the rotating presidency, which proved to be unsustainable. The Washington Post, after Tito's death, referred to his, quote, policies of strict non-alignment in world affairs and a relaxed consumer-orientated brand of communism at home, end of quote. I must admit, I'm, I'm not sure what Marx would make about a relaxed, consumer-orientated brand of communism. Up
2: next, we have the Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu, the king of communism, who was dictator of Romania from 1967 until December 1989. Romania, by the way, is in Southeast Europe, just west of Serbia, north of Bulgaria and south of Ukraine. Born on the 5th of February 1918 in a peasant village to a peasant farmer, he was one of 10 kids, went to the village school until the age of 11. The subsequent decisions that he'll make may reflect his early exit from primary school. Ceausescu escaped his abusive father and worked as an apprentice shoemaker. Through his boss, he was introduced to communism. Young Nikolai worked for the Communist Party, which was illegal at the time. He spent his youth getting arrested for the party, protesting, collecting petition signatures, and getting into strike fights. He met his wife Elena in 1939. She was the lover of Nikolai's brother, but that didn't stop him. Romania by this time was under the rule of a dictator king after he abolished all political parties in the country. The two largest parties were a fascist party and a communist party, so it was only going to end in tears. Romania joined the Second World War in 1941 on the side of the Nazis, and Ceausescu spent the war in and out of prison for his communist activities. During this time he shared a cell with Giorgia Giorgia Dej. Is there a way I can pronounce this? This is an absolute nightmare of a name. No. He shared a cell with Georgia George Dej, a prominent communist leader who became Ceausescu's mentor. There's great networking opportunities in prison, In Ceausescu assisted his mentor in his famous self-criticism sessions with his comrades. Self-criticism was a Marxist concept which was a way to publicly interrogate intellectuals and party members who were suspected of possessing counter-revolutionary positions. Chinese Communist leader Chairman Mao said of the concept, Dust will accumulate if a room is not cleaned regularly. Our faces will get dirty if they are not washed regularly. Our comrades' minds and our party's work may also collect dust and also need sweeping and washing. Basically, it was a way to ensure complete homogeneity, unthinking devotion to the ideology of the party leaders. Ceausescu's role in these sessions was to violently beat any comrade who did not divulge their thought crimes. As Ceausescu said, Marx and Lenin have taught us that anything is ethical, so long as it is in the interest of the proletarian class and its world revolution.
1: Straight out of the textbook, I love it.
2: Yeah, that makes me very nervous. During the war, the Soviets had the Nazis and the Italians on the back foot after the Battle of Stalingrad. They marched into Romania, and Stalin, the Soviet leader, had 130,000 Romanian soldiers sent to the gulags, most of whom would die. So, after helping Hitler exterminate 160,000 Romanian Jews, Romania decided to switch sides in the war, and in 1944 sent 250,000 troops to join up with the Red Army of the Soviet Union. The Soviets defeated the Nazis in Eastern Europe and their leader, Joseph Stalin, kept his troops in Romania and the rest of Eastern Europe. Stalin forced the Romanian king to make the Romanian Communist Party candidate the Prime Minister of Romania. The communists forced the king to abdicate by threatening to massacre a thousand school children. They're not messing around, are they, Uncle Ian?
1: No, that's a sign of determination.
2: Romania was now a communist utopia. Uncle Ian, do you know the origin of the word utopia?
1: I seem to recall it was a book about a mythical place where all would be well. Very good. So Sir Thomas More wrote his book
2: Utopia in 1516. It's very clever. Based on the Greek language, oo being not and topos meaning place. Utopia literally means no place or nowhere. It was a pun as it's almost identical to the Greek word, Utopos, which means a good place. He's saying it's a good place that is nowhere. It doesn't exist. So Ceausescu was made deputy minister of the armed forces under his old cellmate, Georgia Georgia Dej. Throughout the late 40s and 50s, Ceausescu and Georgia Georgia Dej successfully purged the party of the Russian loyalist faction, securing control of the party and of the country. Georgia Georgia Dej died in March of 1965. Ceausescu was chosen to be a temporary leader as a result of party infighting. He was chosen for his weakness. He was five foot two, barely educated, with a terrible stutter. He was the compromise candidate that they believed could not wield much power. Like Stalin himself, Ceausescu rose to the top by the virtue of being underestimated. Nicolae Ceausescu is the ruler of Romania, and his official title becomes General Secretary of the Romanian Communist Party, President of the Socialist Republic of Romania, and Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces. The longer the title, the bigger the ego. It's like a Daenerys Targaryen situation. Um, Have you watched much Game of Thrones? No. Well, it ends in a similar sort of way. Ceausescu was popular with the public after he stood up to Russia and opposed their invasion of Czechoslovakia, Romania is now joining Yugoslavia, trying to break away from the Soviet Union. Ceausescu announces, We want to ensure a multilateral development of society, the thriving of all sides of social life, economy, science and culture, the improvement of management, the moulding of a new man and the promotion of socialist ethics and equity. He's got all I the think, buzzwords in there. You know, I think I've heard that speech before.
1: <laughs> like every dictator that comes to power.
2: Yes, exactly. His ambition was to turn Romania into a world power, which does seem unlikely. He inserted himself onto the world stage by brokering peace deals between the US and China. In 1966, he announced Decree 770 in order to create a great and powerful Romania. This decree banned all birth control and abortions. He announced the fetus is the property of the entire society. The birth rate doubled initially but would later fall as a result of widespread malnutrition. Women were taken by the government once a month and examined for signs of pregnancy. 500,000 of the unwanted children ended up in the famous orphanages known as the Orphanage Archipelago. After the fall of Ceausescu, foreign reporters took statements from the children detailing emotional and physical abuse. The state workers who ran the orphanages were so hungry and corrupt, they stole food designated for the children. Which would explain why the press found corpses stacked in the basements. In the west we have the terms Generation X and Generation Y. In Romania this generation was called Generation Unfortunate. Ceausescu however was a master of propaganda. The news reported that they were living in the golden era of Ceausescu. He saturated education in schools and universities with his ideology. He enforced strict ideological conformities in the humanities and social sciences. In the evaluation of a student or state employee, the metric of competence was replaced by ideology. Professionals were replaced by activists. Culture and the arts became another instrument for political propaganda. He manipulated the content of radio and television shows, publishing houses, theatres, cinemas, opera, ballet, and artist unions to promote a militant, revolutionary character in all artistic productions. Ceausescu is most famous for the cult of personality that he built. His collections of nicknames included The Architect, Prince Charming, Genius, Secular God, and Celestial Body.
1: (laughs) And Scott bookshops were required to carry collected works, the collected speeches, which I think ran to 30 volumes. I think the bookshops in Nazi Germany probably felt hard done by. 30 volumes of collected speeches, I think, might be close to a record.
2: I suppose it's a communist country, but is
1: he getting the royalties for every book sold? He's probably getting the royalties for books that everyone writes, (laughs) whether he's written them or not.
2: I think that's right. (laughs) The media referred to him using numerous masturbatory titles such as Nikolai Ceausescu, guarantor of the nation's progress and independence and Nikolai Ceausescu, visionary architect of the nation's future. He carried a presidential scepter like a medieval king. Children learned songs in schools praising their perfect leader. The purpose was to make criticism of the regime impossible because the leader was infallible. Images of Ceausescu with perspective that might reveal his short stature were banned. Images of his wife, Eleanor, that were side-on, were also banned, as they would reveal her oversized nose. <laughs> the Institute of Balkan Studies later wrote that the two presidential spouses enjoyed two parallel worship structures. And it was only going to get worse. In 1971, he met Chairman Mao in China and met Kim in Korea, North Korea that is, and wanted to be a god like they were to their people. Of course his admiration was misplaced, Ceausescu was fooled in these visits by the Potemkin villages he was shown, fake villages with an impressive facade to trick foreigners into believing the country was succeeding. Uncle do you know where the term Potemkin villages comes from?
1: Presumably we're going back to Catherine the Great's General Potemkin. um, That's exactly
2: right. The name Potemkin Villages comes from the story of Catherine the Great, whose councillor Potemkin erected fake villages for her tour of the countryside to make it look like she was doing a good job as leader. Poor Ceausescu finished school at age
1: 11, so it was unlikely that he had the opportunity to learn about the rule of Catherine the Great. Plus, we hadn't recorded that podcast (laughs) when Ceausescu was growing up. Algorin, as you know, my favorite type of
2: dictator, loves a bit of pageantry. Ceausescu was inspired by Mao and Kim, orchestrated massive public performances, the theme of which was Nikolai Ceausescu. These massive public performances looked like the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympics, and you get the similar sense that if a dancer puts a single step wrong, his immediate family will never be seen again. It is fun to imagine this vile killer organising extravagant dance numbers. Good to see them express their effeminate side. Meanwhile, the economy was an absolute mess. The owner of land became the state, and the gains of the land was equally redistributed to all peasants, regardless of how much or how little they worked on the land, which in turn led to lower productivity. 50,000 peasants revolted and were sent for forced labour in the Canal of Death linking the Danube River to the Black Sea. So it's the same as all the communist countries we've covered, the economic system creates a cycle of seizure of production, disincentives to work, undersupply of food, malnourishment and further disincentive to work. Some were paid extra and promoted not based on their ability or output but becoming a party member and professing allegiance to the ideology. So you're rewarded not by how hard you work or what contribution you make, but how committed you are to the system that enslaves you. Sounds lovely. As you can imagine, this led to widespread incompetence throughout Romanian industry. Ceausescu took out massive loans to build oil fields which, by some marvel of economics, couldn't turn a profit. Production lagged because of the incompetence and because workers were so hungry and disgruntled. During this time, he extorted Israel and Germany, who paid more than a billion dollars to Romania to buy freedom for hundreds and thousands of Jews and ethnic Germans who wanted to escape Romania. Ceausescu became fond of saying, "'Oil, Jews and Germans are our most important export commodities.'" (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Romania was in a great debt, and so Ceausescu resolved to export food to pay the debt, which led to further food shortages and mass starvation. Romania had the highest infant mortality in Europe. There was enough money to have a consistent energy supply. Hot water ran only once per week. Television was limited to one channel that broadcasts only two hours a day. They couldn't even afford to produce their precious propaganda. And really, who wants to live in a communist country without propaganda? Not me. The government built... A system of false reporting to hide their failed utopia. Basic necessities were scarce, but the press continued to report economic growth, and the populace were forced to repeat the lie that Ceausescu was making them rich. The mouthing of lies has a significant psychological impact on the populace. It demoralised the Romanian people and made them feel weak to live in a country without supplies of bread and milk and repeat the lie that they were richer than ever. And the widespread feeling of weakness protected Ceausescu's grip on power. And while the populace starved, Ceausescu built the world's largest palace. The world's largest palace in Romania, with the help of 700 architects and plenty of forced
1: labour. In order to free up the land for that building, some 40,000 homes were demolished?
2: Well, when you're demolishing seven square kilometres of the old city, it's going to include people's homes. Mm. That's a very Nero thing to do. Very much so. It features 365,000 square meters or 4 million square foot of floor space and chandeliers the size of cars. The palace is valued at 4 billion euros, making it the most expensive administrative building in the world. The cost of heating, electricity and lighting is $6 million per year, which is about the same as a medium sized city. It currently houses Romania's two chambers of parliament, along with three museums, and an international conference center, but it's so vast, it's still 70% empty. While we're just on corruption, I'll add that Ceausescu made his wife vice president and a scientist, despite the fact that she was uneducated and couldn't speak decent Romanian. The newspaper had to refer to her as Comrade academic doctor, engineer, Elena Ceausescu, brilliant politician and patriotic scholar of broad international renown. She put on science exhibitions, took questions, and would have her translator translate her answers to the foreign scientists. But in reality, she would just speak absolute nonsense, and her translator was really a scientist and would just answer the questions himself. Oh, that's clever. That is good. I don't mind that. Idi Amin mean, would be proud of that. The two of them, Nikolai Ceausescu and his wife, became famous thieves during a state visit to France in 1978. The couple reportedly raided their official accommodations, and France's president at the time had to warn Queen Elizabeth II ahead of their visit to Britain to lock down the valuables at Buckingham Palace. (laughs) Nikolai loved hunting, or at least the idea of it. He had members of staff place sleeping pills in jars of honey to drug wild bears for him to shoot. It really takes the sport out of it. Tito went hunting with Ceausescu once, and Tito realised he hated Ceausescu because Ceausescu kept cheating. He once shot at a bear, and having missed it, fired at it a second time after the boar had moved out of Ceausescu's and into Tito's field of fire. Tito then killed the boar with his first shot, being a war hero. But Ceausescu falsely claimed that he too had hit the boar with his shot. And Tito says sarcastically, in that case, your shot must have gone up the hole under the boar's tail. (laughs) When they went hunting again together a few years later, Ceausescu again claimed to have killed a boar when it was in fact Tito who shot it. Silliness with Tito aside, Ceausescu is famous for his ruthlessness. When miners went on strike, he was forced to make an embarrassing public compromise with them. He then quietly rounded up the ringleaders for what was explained to be medical examination and treatment. Each of the ringleaders was strapped to a bench under an x-ray machine and was blasted with radiation for five minutes, ensuring they would all die of cancer in a year's time.
1: I'm just shaking my head on that, Scott. you, You can't make this stuff up.
2: Ceausescu was also fond of totalitarian surveillance of his people, with the infamous Securitate. They had recruited half a million informers in a country of 22 million. Anyone suspected of disloyalty to the Communist Party was watched
1: constantly, with their family's entire life recorded with microphones. Scott you mentioned the sheer scale of the Securitate, with more than half a million informants, and at that stage There were 25,000 full-time officers who were members of the secret police. So it was a, a huge network. One Romanian girl interviewed by the BBC
2: recalled her life after her father was sent to prison for suspected disloyalty. The blinds in their home had to be open at all times to allow the securitate to monitor them. Each morning, agents followed her to school. She was recently allowed to read the file they developed on her she found every conversation she ever had was documented. Every fight, every meal. They even had a file detailing the dreams she had at night. When her father was released from prison, he was not the same. He was so broken and fearful, he would ask his family's permission to go to the bathroom or to have something to eat. And they would say, of of course you can use the bathroom. This is your house. In November 1989, the Romanian Communist Party renamed Ceausescu as ruler. In the city of Timisora, an ethnic Hungarian pastor refused to be threatened into silence. Members of his congregation surrounded his apartment in a show of support. The government attempted to evict the pastor, triggering protests in the city. On the next day, on the 21st of December, Ceausescu staged A massive rally in Romania's capital of Bucharest. The media presented it as a spontaneous movement of support for Ceausescu. (laughs) He blamed the uprising on fascist agitators who want to destroy socialism. Eight minutes into his speech, several people began jeering and booing, and others began chanting Timișoara, Timișoara, the town containing the pastor staging the protest. Ceausescu raises his hand to silence the crowd but they would not be quiet. If you watch the video, you can see his face as he slowly recognizes he's losing his grip. In some perverse attempt at bargaining, he announces he will raise the national minimum wage by 200 lu a month. The crowd began to boo and heckle. His wife Elena stated, the worms never get satisfied regardless of how much food you give them. The party he threw to celebrate himself, turned against him and became a genuine revolution as protesters broke into the palace. The couple fled Bucharest. The rebellion spread throughout Romania in a single day. The Romanian army deserted Ceausescu and joined the rebellion. The army captured Ceausescu and his wife and placed them on trial. The trial took one hour. They were found guilty, lined up and shot against the wall. You can still see that wall? It's covered in bullet holes, except the two unmarked silhouettes of Ceaușescu and his wife.
1: My memories of Christmas Day of 1989, hearing the news of the execution of the Ceaușescu's, it didn't come as a surprise because 1989 had been quite a revolutionary year. That was the same year where we had the protests in Tiananmen Square and only in the previous month had been the the fall of the the Berlin Wall. And so the fact that a dictator and, and his wife were overthrown and then shot went a long way towards, I guess, summing up the year. While
2: some people in Romania still defend him, his own son, Valentin Ceausescu, said this of him. The new kind of politicians lie all the time but my father was one of the old kind, more of a fanatic. He was driven by some kind of fanaticism. This belief that you can do good, it's a sort of madness.
1: A couple of headlines after the execution of the Ceausescu's, the New York Times made reference to what it called 24 years of fierce repression, isolation and independence and then scattered through some words that it was a despotic regime with a bizarre cult of personality. A good dose of nepotism as well. Um, Some 30 Ceausescu relatives had very well-paid positions in the Romanian government. So at one stage, he had one brother who was deputy defense minister. At another stage, his brother-in-law was the party secretary in charge of agriculture. They were all on the state payroll. And I imagine they were all educated until the ripe old age of 11. I think the last word goes to the Times, who were able to put it into a single sentence, because their headline was the tyrant who succumbed to the wrath of his long-suffering people.
2: I like that. So, Uncle Ian, we have to make a decision on which of these dictators will be eliminated from the tournament and which will go through to the next round. Both saw themselves as different from the usual vein of Eastern European communist rulers in trying to split themselves from the, the pull and the influence of the Soviet Union. Uncle Ian, what are you thinking with
1: this one? As an individual, it's hard to see that Ceausescu's got any redeeming features he reminds me of Mubarak he came to power without necessarily planning to do so and then spent the rest of his time enriching himself enriching his family and and trying to stay in power and then until he got toppled Tito the reforms in the 1970s didn't do any good for the future of Yugoslavia so his legacy is tarnished Yeah, I'd I'd be leaning towards Ceausescu. And and it's probably the nepotism that that gets it for me. He just seems to be a a character that's very difficult to find any redeeming features at all.
2: Absolutely. Like you said, Tito at least has his war record. He also has the liberalised communism. But Ceausescu, he's just ugly. Everything he did, he hits all points of dictator bingo with, with the repression, the propaganda, murders. And yet... Every time he does it, he manages to not just tick those boxes, but to really do it in the most despicable way possible. His security force is one of the, the worst we've come across. His propaganda yeah. is one of the most effective and totalitarian.
1: And the palace,
2: Scott. And the corruption is the worst that we've seen. He's literally the most expensive administrative building in the world, the biggest palace ever created, the most expensive palace ever created. He does everything on this massive scale. So I think, yeah, we're going to have to give this one to Ceausescu. He's just too evil. I think we agree. Uncle Ian, next episode,
1: we are going to China. Yes, we're going back to China. By popular demand, we're going to cover Mao Zedong and Xi Jinping. Chairman
2: Mao and current Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Chairman Mao needs no introduction, and we're currently recording this podcast remotely, partly as a result of Xi Jinping.
1: (laughs) Don't let him hear you say that.
2: COVID being one of his many gifts to the world. So, Uncle Ian, I'm looking forward to that, and I'll, I'll see you next time. Thanks, Scott.